Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Are you a scholar, journalist, or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present, and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays, and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm going to introduce to you Gilad Alper. Gilad is the co-host of the Tel Aviv Review podcast, founding co-editor of the Tel Aviv Review of Books, and also a fellow at the University of Haifa. Gilad was formerly a journalist for Arez and Ynet News, and today we're going to talk about everything that is Israeli politics. With the recent election, we saw the emergence of right-wing, extremely right-wing political organization that, as of today, they are already part of a new cabinet led by uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Now, nothing new with the figure of Bibi Netanyahu, but certainly what is new is that, that we have these extreme right-wing parties that are now part of the cabinet. And with Gilad, we are going to talk about uh, who are these people? that just a decade ago used to be at the margins of Israeli politics, but today at the very center. But more importantly, how did Israel get to elect these people and how this new government will have an impact on Jerusalem? So we will start with general discussion of Israeli politics, of contemporary Israeli politics, and then we're going to move to the question of Jerusalem. I also would like to invite you to uh, uh, follow uh, Gilad on his uh, podcast, uh, T 
TLV1 or Tel Aviv 1. Uh, very interesting episodes. And in fact, you may find that some of the guests that have been on Jerusalem Unplugged are also on Tel Aviv 1. And all of these podcasts are in English. And they do cover similar topics, but they also offer you the possibility to get a little bit more information about uh, sort of the, again, Israeli politics and also about some internal issues within Israel, whether it's the question of, uh, uh, you know, Arab Jews in Israel or, again, other uh, developments that are taking place uh, throughout uh, the Israeli cultural scene and politics. So before we delve into all of that, that mentioned introduction, Gilad, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as I said in the introduction, uh, today we're going to talk about Israeli politics, which is the first time I'm covering uh, for the podcast. But I think that given uh, the times and the changes that are occurring in Israeli politics and society, it's very important to get a sense of what's going on. So I was wondering if you can just trace for us and give uh, a general picture of Israeli politics today. Particularly, I'm curious about something, uh, you know, browsing Twitter, uh, you always get the sense that Israel is now moving to have the uh, most right-wing government in Israeli history. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I think it is an accurate statement, but it's an, a statement that we've heard many times over and over again. And that is because, you know, the, the pendulum theory in, in, in political science, right, that, you know, it swing, politics swings to the right and then to the left, doesn't apply to Israel because whenever you swing the pendulum to the right, uh, you think it goes up all the, all the way to the end, there's more that it can swing to the right. And that's exactly what happened in the last election that was held in the beginning of November. And, and now the, the new government that is uh, meant to uh, be set up any day uh, will include, I think for the first time in, well, at least in my, my, my memory, uh, purely uh, uh, right-wing uh, uh, parties. So it will be a Likud government in which Likud will be the most left-wing party in the coalition. Now, I don't think that ever happened. It certainly hasn't happened since the 1980s. Um, and uh, that is a major shift uh, to the right in politics, but also the fact that the other parties within the government are not just to the right of Likud, but uh, radically to the right of, of, of Likud, uh, especially uh, one, the, uh, the, the other three parties that will make up the coalition are all, all religious parties. Two of them are ultra-Orthodox, but the one modern Orthodox uh, will be a, a, a radical right-wing party that not only represents uh, the the settlers and the settlement project in a, in a very outspoken way, um, it also has some uh, very sweeping uh, constitutional changes in mind for the balance of powers between the executive and the judiciary, about the delicate balance uh, between church and state, well, synagogue and state in Israel, yes, re the religion and 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 the state, and other things that are uh, um, that are on their agenda. And now, it, it, basically, what remains to be seen is whether uh, Netanyahu will join in on all these initiatives or try to uh, um, water them down or maybe uh, halt them. Uh, that is, uh, I think, the, the biggest mystery at the moment in politics, in Israeli politics. 
Let me ask something about a couple of individuals who a decade ago, probably even less than a decade ago, they were at the very margin of Israeli politics. But today they make uh, headlines, they're in the news, and certainly they are becoming central to the uh, new government and uh, the policy that this new government may implement in the years to come. So there are these two individuals, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel uh, Smotrich. Can you tell us something a little bit more about them mm. and how you think they actually managed to leave the margins of the Israeli political spectrum and to get at the very center of all of this? Yeah, well, it's a confluence of several factors. Uh, well, Smotrich and uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir ran together on the same ticket called Religious Zionism. But basically, they are heads of two separate factions. Uh, you will need a microscope to uh, 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 to trace the, the the differences between them, but they are both um, on the uh, right fringes of the already right uh, uh, settlement movement, and some of them have made uh, well, all of them <laughs> have made. Uh, comments to the effect of uh, what is can be can be termed Jewish supremacy. Um, so basically, they are trying to undercut the uh, equality um, aspects of Israel's constitutional arrangement. Obviously, Israel has more than twenty percent of its uh, uh, population are uh, non-Jews, and therefore there are all sorts of constitutional arrangements giving them citizenship rights etc uh they these the two this party headed by these two people each in their own way i won't, won't get in, into that because it's pretty complicated but are trying to undermine uh these uh, constitutional arrangements in favor of some sort of uh, um uh, uh, primacy uh for uh, the jewish national collective in israel now the they uh, have been on, as you said, Roberto, on the fringes of politics for a long time. Uh, ben Gvir ran for uh, uh, Knesset on an independent ticket, but he ran several times and failed to 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 pass the the electoral threshold. So he didn't get get enough votes uh, to to get into the Knesset. And to do that, you need anywhere between three and four seats. And now combined together. Uh, both Smotrich and Ben Gvir um, got 14 seats, which is more than their uh, uh, powers uh, combined for as far as I can remember. Um, what led to that, as I said, is a confluence of several factors, but I think two major ones. One is uh, uh, the uh, collapse of the more um, centrist or perhaps more moderate wing of the settlement movement that was led by Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, who against all odds uh, entered, um, basically was instrumental in forming a government that was made of centrist and left-wing parties, including an Arab party. Um, so uh, for much of his constituency, and I think the results of uh, the, this election, last month's election, uh, reflects to what extent his whole power base had completely collapsed uh, because uh, um, hardly any, any votes 
uh, uh, that had voted for him before, he got seven seats, which is a pretty decent uh, result. Hardly any of them stayed in the vicinity, in the political vicinity uh, of his uh, party. And the other one is uh, that uh, Netanyahu uh, labored greatly uh, to legitimize that sort of radical right-wing politics because he knew it would serve him. Uh, these, uh, um, th- there is some sort of uh, an, uh, a tacit agreement between Netanyahu and his coalition partners. I mean, this is all speculation, but it's uh, 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 probably, I mean, it makes, it w- it remains to be seen how accurate it is uh, that uh, they would be, the, his, Netanyahu's coalition partners would be allowed to uh, further and promote the uh, um, constitutional reforms or even revolution, as I said before, whether it's about the balance of powers, whether it's uh, about uh, a religion and state, and uh, whether it's about the the status of the of the West Bank, which is of course not uh, a, a sovereign part of Israel. Um, in return for that, uh, they would give Netanyahu a complete carte blanche uh, to uh, halt the criminal uh, charges against him and maybe drop them entirely. Of course, it, it would require also a great constitutional effort, getting rid of all the uh, state prosecution uh, and uh, really a, a, a very um, deep and trenchant uh, sort of uh, uh, process that would get Netanyahu off the criminal hook. Um, and it's sort of like um, a mar- you know marriage of convenience between uh, these two that each would give the other the uh, right to uh, uh, basically <laughs> demolish Israel's constitution in one way uh, so that it would serve the other. Let me ask something, it's a very personal opinion, but the way I see that is like basically Netanyahu is ready to trade uh, his own uh, life, in a sense, in a manner of speaking, I mean, sort of judicial life for a number of reforms that may change the face of Israel and may also have like consequences uh, of various nature and certainly, you know, some violent kind of uh, consequences, particularly if we start talking about the annexation of the West Bank or the changing of the status quo in Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about that later. Isn't that unbalanced? And I'm curious about what's the reaction of Israeli society? Do they see this uh, sort of... uh, unbalanced trade of between with between the two do they think it's uh, uh it's fair to trade one's uh, uh judicial safety for changing the face of israel well that speculation that i just uh, uh, uh I just explained is not new i mean when people went to the ballot box two months ago they knew exactly what they're voting for i mean it was it wasn't uh, like he he was a hidden agenda that netanyahu all of a sudden uh, 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 pulled out of his bag. Uh, it was when people voted for Netanyahu and his coalition partners, they did it with the uh, uh, understanding, or at least they were expected to understand, that this is where, 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 where politics are going, and this is what Netanyahu, if he wins, the sort of agenda that uh, he will uh, promote. Now, there, are, there have been all sorts of uh, uh, opinion polls uh, coming up ever since, saying that, um, you know, all sorts of illiberal 
uh, agendas that Netanyahu's coalition partners uh, have been uh, promoting, especially on uh, uh, you know activities on on the Sabbath. I mean, whether Israel would be allowed to even be open on on the Sabbath, and all sorts of restrictions on uh, a violation of of the, of the Sabbath. And all sorts of very conservative um, educational programs that are being planned to be introduced now by some of Netanyahu's uh, uh, very right-wing, ultra-conservative uh, coalition partners into the uh, state education system. So th- there have been some opinion polls suggesting that is there is a, a backlash there among. Netanyahu's, even among Netanyahu's base, so it's not just among his opponents. And one thing that we do have to bear in mind is that even though Netanyahu got a decisive win in this election for the first time in, I don't know, five uh, election rounds that we've had, uh, still, if you break down the votes, uh, it's split right in the middle. So Israel is like 0.01% to the right and 49.99% to the left. It's uh, or to the center or to the non right. It's uh, there's really several thousands of votes uh, uh, splitting uh, the right and the left. So even when you're talking about people who are are, um, opposing uh, Netanyahu, they are literally half of Israel. Um, the, the reason they, they, they got fewer seats in the parliament is because of all sorts of like political arrangements that didn't, didn't, didn't work out. But with the votes themselves, if, if you count them, Israel is split right in the middle. So, uh, you count 50% of Israel that are, I'm assuming, opposed to all these radical changes. And if you need, if you take just, I don't know, 10% of Netanyahu's supporters that are some sort of you know, on the liberal spectrum, and you have to bear in mind that Netanyahu and his party could were that liberal party, and you know, right wing party, but still a liberal party, uh, economically but also socially. Um, so, if uh, if you take just ten percent of of his voters, you have something like sixty percent of Israel opposing uh, these uh, uh, these uh, policies. But I I think that if there's any chance of Stopping them, or at least, uh, um, um, you know, making them somewhat more palatable, is Netanyahu himself. Because, well, Netanyahu has been prime minister for a very long time. We know about him that he is a very um, um, solitary leader. I mean, in the sense that uh, uh, is almost—I wouldn't say a tyrant, right—but he's some someone who's. Uh, it, it's all. You know, down to him whether he wants to promote one agenda or one policy or or not, and I think that he is now really torn because, on the one hand, uh, he the, the the one thing that would gain him political longevity and even freedom from imprisonment uh, would be uh, giving in to all his um, uh, political partners to further whatever agendas, political agendas they want to. Further, the thing is that it would put him in a bind with the rest of the Western world. And Netanyahu, uh, for all his faults, has always been, uh, had this, um, 
uh, uh, image that he wanted to nurture, and that is for that Israel under him is an exemplary Western democracy. Now, if you take, you know, if, if actually his partners follow through on all that they want to follow through, Israel will cease to be uh, uh, an exemplary Western democracy, whether you like it or not. And, you know, whether there will be a backlash among Israel's uh, um, uh, uh, allies in the West, I don't know, the European Union or the United States, that I don't know. But the fact that uh, Netanyahu would not be able to fly around the world in cocktail parties and be welcome as this great uh, uh, liberal Western leader uh, of, uh, of the Middle East, I think that that would be, um, that would be something that might uh, uh, stop him at some point. I wanted to ask you about the left in Israel, but because you said something very, very interesting, I want to ask you something about Bibi Netanyahu and his actual power to control individuals like uh, Smotrich and Ben-Gvir. I mean, and this seems to me, just because I'm following them and I see what they're doing on a daily basis, particularly when they go around East Jerusalem and the sort of provocations that they, you know, they go around and it seems like they're doing that obviously in order to keep the tension high and they're at the spotlight on themselves. Is there a danger that uh, Bibi won't be able to actually control them and they may trigger all sorts of uh, uh, tensions and, uh, you know, moving from there to potentially what some may call a third intifada or, yeah. you know, rebellions? Yeah, well, you know, I don't think so. I think that it's all really, I don't know, maybe I'm, just like Netanyahu's most um, adamant supporters, I'm attributing all sorts of magical powers to him. I don't know, but I think that uh, having, you know, looking at his uh, style of government uh, over the years that he's been in power, uh, he is an incredibly astute politician. Uh, he's been able uh, to successfully maneuver uh, all his potential rivals, both within Likud and within his governments. And uh, as they say, cemeteries are full of uh, people who were supposed to stand in for Netanyahu. Um, and I think that the same applies to Smotrich and Ben Gvir. Um, be uh, well, of course, there are, there are uh, hooligans, there are provocators, uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that you dedicated a lot of uh, of, of this podcast to uh, uh, Ben Gvir's uh, um, actions at uh, Sheikh Jarrah before uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, really trying hard to set fire to a very uh, a very charged power keg, powder keg. Um, uh, so this is what Ben Gvir and, and, uh, and, uh, and Smotrich are good at. Provocations, they're good at uh, uh, demagoguery, uh, you know, saying things that, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, sort of like power without responsibility. Um, and I think that if Netanyahu feels, and he might, might have started feeling now, uh, uh, following the election results, that they are threatening his uh, primacy, uh, then he, he might start to uh, maneuver against them. Uh, 
Um, this, uh, yeah, I, I think that um, that uh, uh, yeah, they, they won't do anything. They won't be able to carry out any of, of these policies without Netanyahu's consent. I must give credit to Netanyahu for one of the most brilliant uh, campaigns where basically he didn't say a word other than a few words which eventually dragged people to vote. And, and I think uh, political scientists will study this campaign in years to come because it was like quite unbelievable. Basically, you didn't see him around and yet he got 64 mandates, right? Out of yeah. 120. Mm -hmm. And so half of them are his own party. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah, uh, 32 mandates are just, justly could. So he has um, a basis of a million voters that, for Israel, it's quite a lot, that would vote for him no matter what. And honestly, I don't fully understand uh, why in this last election, and it actually this last election had the highest turnout since the 1990s. Now, I don't understand why. Uh, I, I haven't seen anywhere any convincing explanation as to why that happened, because, you know, it was the fifth, uh, round, uh, fifth election in just uh, three years. I mean, so there's voter fatigue. I mean, people are sick of just voting every, 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 every year instead of four. Um, and the, the, there was this, also this feeling that we are in a constant stalemate, that Israel is, is polarized and divided. So... Uh, you, you know, not just voter fatigue, but also the, this feeling that uh, it has no purpose. Yet, some people who hadn't voted in the previous election, four election rounds, went out to vote this time round to bring Netanyahu back to power only a year after he was, uh, uh, he was uh, um, ousted, after... 12 years that he had been uh, in, in the prime minister's seat. Um, normally, I, when I vote, you know, if, if, if the mayor of Tel Aviv, for example, I live in Tel Aviv, so the mayor of Tel Aviv has been in place for 25 years now. And I supported him greatly in the beginning. I voted for him three, the first three times. And then I said, okay, well, he, he's been in power for 15 years. If he ha hasn't done something, so he's not going to do it for the remainder of, 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 his, of his tenure. So this is what I, I would think, if, if I were a Netanyahu voter, I would think the same. If he hasn't done anything for the 12 years that he's been in power, so he's probably not going to do it. Yet, they all went out in droves and and voted for him. Uh, I I think some, some of it is the backlash to the uh, to this interim government that I, uh, I, I talked about earlier, the fact that there was... Uh, um, uh, an Arab party in the coalition for the first time ever, and I think that was uh, unpalatable for quite a few right-wing uh, uh, voters. But I, I don't think that alone explains this this great right-wing backlash uh, that Netanyahu uh, thrives on. I'm sorry, I, I, wish, I wish I could have uh, more convincing answers, but I don't. No, but uh, I, I was actually in Bersheva the, uh, on election day, and in talking to people, I, 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 first of all, I was surprised too that some went back to vote, as you said. So obviously there was some sort of a, uh, a moment of attraction to, to the election. My feeling was that enough is enough. Now we're going to vote. Obviously they vote only could. Uh, 
which I always find interesting because obviously, you know, like Bersheva, we're talking about a city of essentially 100% Mizrahi Jews, um, but they're, they're following the... Uh, yeah, you know, no, it's a, a, a good for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, but I had the same feeling too when I was talking to some uh, family members and, you know, and, and all of these people are essentially from Iraq or Morocco and they should have some sort of a... Uh, you know, empathy with uh, with the Arabs of Israel, but uh, no, actually, they're like this disconnect, which, in my sort of academic point of view, is the sort of a victory of decades of education and brain, you know, washing to you know separate the two, despite the common origin, the common language, the common culture, and and that's it. And therefore, you have the Likud taking the votes of uh, of people really that I don't think care about them socially speaking when we look at the at the policies of El, of Elikud yeah. um, but but I wanted to question to ask you something about where's the left in Israel because you know and I appreciated that you said left well let's say non right yeah. or whatever it is because at some point if you have this 50% of a country that does not support the Likud and is not left who are they yeah. what is that they want Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, I think that um, the crisis of the left, first of all, it's a global phenomenon, right? I mean, Israel uh, was not, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that, but all the things that you know about the left in Europe and elsewhere applies to Israel as well. Uh, I'm going to talk about the, the, the very specific circumstances in Israel itself. And that is, well, basically the left uh, was no, previously known as the peace camp. 
So uh, I think the flagship policy was to arrive at some sort of a, a peaceful arrangement uh, with the Arab world, predominantly the Palestinians. Uh, so uh, and and that uh, was uh, the uh, uh, centerpiece of uh, the Israeli politics throughout much of the '90s, and then it collapsed in in 2000, and. Uh, um, also s down to uh, mismanagement of the then leader of the left, Ehud Barak, uh, that left uh, the the Israeli Labour Party and the left wing, the peace camp in general, uh, in tatters. But it runs more deeply than than that, I think, because um, what Netanyahu has been incredibly successful at doing is in consolidating what I call the Netanyahu paradigm. And by that, I mean that the peace camp relied, I mean, his, its electioneering was uh, um, based on two uh, premises. One is that uh, um, a, a peace uh, a, agreement uh, would uh, lead to uh, um, economic pr prosperity. And that was indeed the case in the 1990s, because before that, Israel was this backwater uh, country, completely secluded from its uh, from the region. There was the Arab embargo. I mean, there were hardly any. Uh, I mean, when I was growing up in in Tel Aviv in the 1980s, we didn't have any. We didn't have uh, uh, Pepsi Cola, and we didn't have McDonald's, and we didn't have all these uh, 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 international uh, um, companies that are. You know that you see everywhere, and including in, in Tel Aviv today. So that this openness to the world was very much down to the Oslo Accords and the the Israel's attempts to make peace with the with the wider Arab world. The other thing is that um, the, uh, the it was thought that uh, um, making arrangements with the Palestinians is necessary diplomatically. So it means that it would serve Israel better, uh, would, would, would increase its relationship with, uh, with its patrons in Europe and the United States, and it would also be open the door to other um, similar uh, uh, agreements with, with Arab countries. And in, indeed that happened. So take, for example, the peace agreement with Jordan, Jordan had been uh, so, sort of, you know, inverted commas, pro-Israel uh, uh, country in the Arab world for many years before, and the only time that they actually formalized that uh, uh, that sentiment was after the, was, the, the, there was the Declaration of Principles signed between the Palestinian Liberation Organization and, and Israel. Only then they allowed themselves to be outspoken about the willingness to be to have uh, uh, um, normalized relations with uh, uh with israel um and thanks to netanyahu these two premises the economic prosperity and the diplomatic pros prosperity completely collapsed because there's no peace with the palestinians in the horizon yet the last decade and netanyahu decade israel saw almost an unprecedented uh, economic prosperity and also, uh, relations with, with the United States remained strong, especially under Donald Trump, but not only. Um, and the Abraham Accords were signed 
with uh, three or four other Arab countries, irrespective of uh, uh, any progress of any non-existent progress on the uh, on the Palestinian track, and and basically uh, that completely undercut the uh, the mobilization, the mobilizing arguments of the peace camp, uh, because you know the the one thing that was left was saying, okay, the occupation is morally wrong, and you know beating up and killing extrajudicially uh, uh, some Palestinians is wrong, but you know most Israelis don't really care about that, um, and and also this vague notion that at some point Israel will cease to be a Jewish and democratic state and will have to have some sort of like a, a formally um, apartheid regime in the in the West Bank. And that is also something that Israelis don't uh, don't really care much about because they said, okay, well, we've had this occupation for 55 years and it hasn't really affected us. So why would this uh, uh, vaguely, you know, pros- uh, 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 prospective apartheid regime, how will it uh, uh, affect us that we don't know? Um, and and this is, I, I think, the reason why the peace camp has all but disappeared and the uh, non-right-wing, like the centrist, uh, basically it's the successor of the left-of-center parties uh, of your uh, centers around, you know, more liberal social policies, uh, uh, you know, a greater adherence uh, to uh, or opposition to uh, judicial reforms and all sorts of like, uh, uh, you know, a formerly liberal democratic uh, agenda rather than Likud that is more conservative and at, at points even more radical in its, in, in its uh, agenda for reform. Let me ask a quick question about the Arab parties, because uh, there's always been the sense that at some point they were gaining momentum, and they did occasionally, but they never really sort of uh, breached in a way that they would become uh, a relevant part of the Israeli political spectrum. Yes, they did in the last government up to a point, but despite the numbers, that uh, would give them, you know, sort of a possibility to be... uh, uh, some king makers, you may say, in, probably in the non-right-wing uh, uh, camp. So I was wondering, what's going on with them? Yeah, well, I actually disagree with what you just said. I think that they were um, uh, forced to be reckoned with in Israeli politics uh, for some time, and they were the potential kingmakers in uh, the October 2019 and the 2020 elections. Uh, that together with the joint list that was a composition of several Arab parties uh, running together. And just to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, take a step back for a second and give an introduction about the joint list, it was basically after some electoral reforms raised the electoral threshold, uh, the separate Arab parties feared for good reason that they won't be able, all of them, to pass the electoral threshold. So they coalesced, running together on the same ticket. And there were actually, the factions within the joint list were very different. Some of them were like post-communist, other were Islamists, other was like nationalists bordering on on separatism. Uh, And they had very different agendas, but they agreed to put them aside and say, okay, now we're going to 
deal with the one thing that is really on every uh, Palestinian citizen of Israel's mind, and that is the uh, 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 making arrangements uh, with the Jewish majority. So they ran together, and that paid off electorally greatly because turnout among uh, in the Arab uh, society shot through the roof when they were running together. I mean, they were uh, normally the turnout is fifty something percent when the joint list ran together. It was seventy something percent, and around ninety something percent of 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 Arabs voted for them. So they were really the sole representatives of uh, the Palestinian community within Israel, the Israeli citizens. Um, and indeed, in uh, 2020, uh, they got 15 seats, uh, making them the third largest party in parliament. So that's a pretty impressive uh, uh, result. And together with the you know, when the, with the non-right, yeah, with the left and right of center, they formed a majority in parliament. They had 62, uh, 62 seats. And they, not only that, they were all willing for the first time ever, and I won't get, get into that, but that was pretty unprecedented, willing to support the then, uh, center, uh, anti-Netanyahu candidate, Benny Gantz, who's today, uh, uh just, yeah, the outgoing defense minister. And, um, it was, they, they they were willing to support Benny Gantz, but it was some members of Benny Gantz's party that struck it down. And they said that if Benny Gantz would accept um, the uh, 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 the support of the Arab party, they would not give that government uh, the uh, 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 their support. And that's how Benny Gantz's majority vanished and the Knesset was dissolved and we went, uh, Israel went, no, sorry, he was actually, it, it didn't dissolve, he split with some faction from his party and joined Netanyahu's uh, uh, government against em- every election pledge that he had made to his, uh, uh, um, to his uh, uh, constituency uh, before. And that led to, you know, all sorts of, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, to a process of uh, um, uh, infighting within the within the joint list that, end, that they ended up uh, breaking up and running in two separate, uh, two separate lists. And one of them was the one that joined, uh, one, one of these two lists was the one that joined Naftali Bennett's government up until now. But, you know, for someone like me who uh, is um, in, on the left and is very much in favor of an inclusion of uh, the Arab representatives uh, in the Knesset, it was a sorely missed uh, opportunity that uh, uh, Benny Gantz could have formed uh, a more, certainly a more cohesive uh, government than, than, than uh, Bennett's uh, and could have invited... Uh, uh, the, well, basically all the uh, representatives of the Arab community in Israel that, that as I said, was overwhelmingly in, in, in favor of that. So, yeah, it is a sad, sad, very sadly missed opportunity. I was recently reviewing a book for a podcast, New Books Network, 
I think her name is uh, Tilde Rosmer, and she was she's brought a book about the Islamic movement in Israel, which is not Hamas. We're talking about sort of the, the two factions uh, of Islamic movement in Israel. And uh, you say that she, it, it, it's you know for people who don't know uh, Israeli politics that well, the Islamic movement in Israel is actually the more moderate part of the part, uh, Arab party in, in government. The more you know, one willing to uh, um, uh, uh, um, sort of uh, coalesce with uh, with with other Jewish parties. And that is exactly the point she was making, like how they too were eager to enter this coalition because obviously they saw the benefits, uh, you know, and again, because they do represent Palestinians uh, in Israel and they kind of disassociated themselves with uh, Hamas or other movements in the West Bank on Gaza, try to really make it a, a clear cut. And I thought it was very interesting how, again, as you said, there was an opportunity there to see something different, but obviously... It didn't happen. Yeah, and well, I, 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 am still optimistic. I think that the last government, the one with the uh, with the Islamic movement, uh, the fact that it was formed really against all odds, means that I mean, I mean the seed, the seeds were sowed. It, w- it was the first time ever in Israel's history that an Arab party was part of the coalition, and um, the sky didn't fall. And I think that uh, when. Uh, Netanyahu and the right wing discredit themselves, and I hope that that happens uh, sooner the better. Um, then uh, that will be the fallback because the the, the left, the center, like the cent- the non right, would have to understand that in order to be politically viable, they have to uh, uh, coalesce with uh, with the Arab representation in the Knesset and making them an inseparable, inseparable part of the camp. I have two more questions, and I want to shift to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask something about uh, Israeli politics and the status of Jerusalem. I was wondering, to your knowledge, in a list of priorities, where does Jerusalem stand in Israel politics at large, but you know, focusing on the upcoming government? Well, it's... Jerusalem, as you and your listeners probably know, has many, many layers. Um, and I think that the two main layers are the symbolic one. So really, you know, this uh, undivided capital of the eternal Jewish people, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the other one is the fact that it is uh, a, 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 a rather deprived, uh, uh, lower middle class, uh, very um, religious. I mean, religious, not just, you know, the, the fact that religion is present, but religious communities are uh, make, make up a huge part of it. And uh, the, that makes it less... Um, um, conducive to you know economic prosperity, to put it mildly. Um, so basically, is uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, on the one hand, you know, the symbolic level. I'm sure that it will be um, touted left, right, and center, especially by people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir, uh, who are talking about uh, um, changing the status quo on, on Temple Mount and allowing. Jews to uh, um, uh, go there to, to pray uh, officially. Now it's it's banned uh, by law, and 
<clears throat> and the the more well practical pragmatic level is that um it, it will just have to be uh, um, saved from bankruptcy because there's so many populations in there that are below the poverty line and they don't pay municipal taxes and uh, the uh, the budget of Israel, the largest city in Israel is completely depleted. So it means that the government will have to weigh in somehow and how is that weighing in going to look like because... Uh, it is the government is also run by uh, ultra orthodox. That many of their constituencies do live in Jerusalem. So it, it's um, it is uh, it is uh, it, it is a pretty complicated uh, situation. Someone said, and I like that. That um, I mean, I, I like it because it's an interesting, thought provoking exercise. Not, but it's it's a pretty bleak uh, outlook. That Jerusalem is what, what the rest is twenty years ahead of the rest of Israel. So uh, that it's uh, uh, a pretty uh, 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 poor and uh, um, very tense sort of uh, uh, place, which is where Israel is going. I really don't. Uh, well, it's it's sort of tempting to. Uh, uh, to think like that because Jerusalem didn't used to be like that before. I mean, it's a pretty uh, recent uh, development. Even within my lifetime, I still remember as an adult that Jerusalem had these liberal pockets, secular secular pockets, and now they're literally pockets. There are really uh, hardly any left. Um, and you know, it, it it is sort of like the 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 uh, the uh, canary in the in the landmine. I don't know. Let me ask something, and maybe this requires a bit of a crystal ball, but let's say Smotrich, Ben-Gvir managed to convince Bibi for his own benefit that there may be changes that should occur to the status quo of the holy places in Jerusalem, which have mostly to do with the uh, Temple Mount. How do you think Israelis may react to that? And mostly we're talking about secular Israelis. And... How do you think the international community may react to that? I think that uh, a real danger for Israel, like a dangerous backlash, would not come from Temple Mount, but would come from their attempts to change the status quo in the greater West Bank. So uh, right now, basically, the arrangement in the West Bank is based on the temporary arrangements from the Oslo Accords that was supposed to uh, expire uh, more than 20 years ago. But still, they, you know, it serves everyone's interests to keep, him, keep them that way, except the radical settlers that want to change them and either formally annex uh, uh, the, the West Bank or parts of it. And the question is what to do with the Palestinians. And if they change the status quo in the West Bank, it would mean that uh, it would be a formalization of uh, um, a real apartheid regime. So it, it wouldn't uh, just be a, a temporary uh, arrangement with uh, second-class citizens, but like a, 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 an, an entrenched arrangement with um, even not second-class citizens. They're not going to be citizens at all. 
And that would open the door, first of all, to all sorts of diplomatic um, um, backlash. I don't know how effective it will be, but uh, uh, we are going to see much more of that. And also, if it comes hand in hand with judicial reform that doesn't allow the um, uh, the Supreme Court to control any of Israel's policies in the in the in the West Bank, that would have uh, a backlash from an international law uh, perspective. So all you know in in the international in the international uh, criminal court and all sorts of uh, other universal jurisdiction uh, instances that are now waiting on the sidelines to see and 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 and, and have been saying okay Israel is capable of uh, uh, maintaining its own um, legal uh, system conforming with international law once that is removed then we are going to see uh, a backlash on that and maybe, I don't know, an in, in impending indictments against Israeli officials. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen? And that has the potential of embroiling Israel in a very tricky uh, uh, situation. I think much more than the Temple Mount that, as I said, is more symbolic than, than anything else. Last question. Is there anything that I didn't ask <laughs> but you feel like it's important in order to understand Israeli politics as of now? Yeah. Um, no, I think that we covered, I think the, uh, first of all, the what I call the, uh, uh, the um, victory of the Netanyahu paradigm, which is why the left wing is in tatters, is something that is very important to understand. And also, uh, I think the... Um, the conflict within Netanyahu himself. So between his desire to see his, the charges against him dropped and his willingness to go all the way and make sure that it happens and his desire to come across as the, you know, this great elder statesman and leave a legacy. I mean, he wouldn't want to leave, leave uh, that his legacy would be that Israel was uh, became, uh, had become the the pariah of, of the Western world. Quite contrary, he would he would want to be remembered as the person who really entrenched Israel's Western liberal credentials. And you know, it remains to be seen how he's going to be able to uh, uh, make these two and very separate ends meet. This was Gilad Arpen, co-host of a Tel Aviv Review podcast, founding co-editor of a Tel Aviv Review of books and a fellow at the University of Haifa, and indeed an expert of Israeli politics. Gilad, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 